from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Vasu Mohan. I met Vasu at a celebration of the birth of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. He performed a traditional Indian dance of the style Bharata Natyam. In this particular dance, he tells the story of ten avatars in which the eighth is Krishna and the tenth has yet to appear. Vasu grew up in Sri Lanka until he was ten and then moved to India due to the ongoing civil war. He came to the U.S. for an environmental sciences master program and ran into the Baha'is there. He found he could use his dance art to promote the teachings of the Baha'i faith. We talk about this in the interview. I started the interview by asking Vasu where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Sri Lanka first and then moved to India after the ethnic riots in Sri Lanka when I was 10. In both countries that I lived, you know, these are culturally very rich and diverse countries where multiple religions and languages and cultures coexist, sometimes better than others. But there's just always a sense of vibrancy in the arts in the places that I grew up in. What was religious life like growing up for you? So I grew up in a family where there was a lot of prayer and music and um, religious festivals celebrated with great gusto and going to the temple very often. I also grew up in a Catholic school, uh, at least during my primary school. You know, this, it was obviously a different religious background. My family comes from a Hindu background and the school was a Catholic school and there was a lot of celebration and religiosity associated with Catholicism that I was exposed to at a very young age. And part of what I observed in growing up in both of these traditions simultaneously was that there was a lot of beauty and there was a lot of you know, service that was part of these traditions, but there was also a lot of inconsistencies with what was the belief and what was preached and what was actually practiced. And it gave me a sense of distance from, you know, both of these traditions to understand and appreciate that they both had a lot of commonalities, more so than the practitioners of both of these traditions were willing to admit there was a lot of commonality and there were also differences in certain outward forms in which these religions and these religious traditions were practiced and a definite feeling of by a lot of practitioners is one was better than the other or one was truer than the other. And do you notice this commonality growing up or was it later in life? Now, this commonality definitely was part of my upbringing. I think my family definitely exposed us to different religious 
communities and we were my sister and I we were encouraged to learn and participate in activities and festivals of different communities and I think also in when you grow up in South Asia both in India and Sri Lanka where I grew up in both places you would have to make a special effort to not learn about other religious communities or communities other than your own families they are very much sort of in your face you see them you're you're living in a mix of these different communities so the commonality between these cultures is i think very obvious when you listen to what people truly value in their lives there always seems to be a sense of you know wanting peace and joy and respect and dignity for example if you ask a lot of people who practice hinduism you say what does being a good hindu mean and almost the first thing that will roll out of people's tongue is to be a good hindu means to be a good human being to be kind and to be respectful and to be supportive and to be of service you know often we were told analogies of how a tree reaches its greatest state of being when it gives forth fruits you know when you ask the same question to Christians or we I attended catechism class in my school and you would hear the very same thing to be a good Christian or a good Buddhist people would almost always say it is to be a good human being and when you dissect what people mean by that it's always this this a common set of values that people would share uh, and there were also certain values that were more i think region specific in that in south asia people would always say you know be respectful to your elders and you know be um sort of charitable and looking after the old and the ill but what they believed in and what they talked about as being attributes of a good human being was always very very common and what were your interests growing up i read a lot um i loved reading I was very much interested in the arts. I used to do drama and debating in school. And you know, back then it felt like there was just a lot more free time that I had as a child. We used to have these long summers when it was just too hot to do anything and school shut down and you had, you know, two and a half months of time to pass in creative endeavors. So we did a lot of interesting things. growing up but i always thought at one point or the other that i would do theater and dance and drama because i was just naturally very much drawn to it and i was fortunate to grow up after i left sri lanka and moved to india i did my middle school and high school in a educational institution associated with a fine arts university that was uh, founded by a very famous theosophist and artist in India and we had access to some of the best artists that the subcontinent and often from other parts of the world as well who would come to India and perform so i was always drawn to their art you know and the way they used their art to communicate and to create beauty and what did you do after high school After high school I studied engineering. I did 4 years of engineering focused on the environment and then I did a master's degree. And it was the master's degree that brought me to um the United States. 
So math and science was an interest to you as well as the fine arts? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I loved you know, math and science and I was especially drawn to, to nature. You know, th- that I would study engineering was picked by my family. It was not by um, my own volition, but that I studied environmental engineering and sciences was definitely something that I was drawn to. It was nature and being respectful to nature was just something that I was both raised with and was very passionate about. So it was a natural fit within my interests. And it also brought the science, math and physics, and uh, sort of some of the hard sciences with natural sciences. And where did you go to get your master's degree in the States? I studied at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And you got your master's in environmental science as well? Yes, I did. This was an interesting turning point in my life. When I came to the U.S., I picked the university based on a whole set of criteria. And what I did not know about Gainesville at the University of Florida was that it had a very active and wonderful Baha'i community. And within the first couple of weeks of being in the U.S., I ran into the Baha'i community, was drawn to the teachings of the Baha'i faith. And the revelation of Baha'u'llah had a very intense impact in my personal life, but also, interestingly, in the way I was approaching what I was studying. And I was really drawn to understanding that a lot of the environmental problems that as a educational institution and researchers and academics that we were trying to find solutions to were fundamentally part of a moral crisis. And I think making that connection was very much a part of my studying and investigating the teachings of Baha'u'llah. At the point at which I finished my um, master's degree, I was pretty positive that I wanted to work not necessarily specifically on the environment, but on a range of different issues of policy and a range of issues where people would be empowered to make good choices. And I initially worked with an organization that was looking at conflict resolution and character education. It's a small organization based in Washington, D.C., and I moved to work there. I worked there for about three and a half years. Were you on a spiritual search when you ran into the Baha'is in Gainesville? I wouldn't say I was on a spiritual search actively or consciously, but I think my mind was open and I think there were a series of different incidents. When you move to a new place, you gain a certain distance from your own upbringing. And I was fortunate already in having grown up in two different countries and in very different circumstances. In Sri Lanka as a Tamil-speaking Sri Lankan, I was part of a minority community. And when I moved to India, to the southern part of India where I, where I lived in, I was very much part of the majority community speaking Tamil and um, coming from a Hindu family. So it was very interesting experiencing that when I was young. And I think when I moved to the States, it provided a further dimension to what being an immigrant means and being you know, in a place which is where people's background and people's upbringings are quite different from yours. So I think it provided an opportunity to 
openly investigate and search everything. I don't think it, this is why I mean it wasn't particularly a spiritual quest, but truly an avenue to look and explore. And I ran into the Baha'i community and I was really touched by the sense of openness and actively working on issues relating to justice and equality and you know, and addressing racism. And I was really very much drawn to these, the work of the Baha'i community. And so that's what attracted you to it? Initially, I think that was definitely what drew me to the, to the community because I'm very much used to, you know, different religious traditions and cultures. And I would have been curious, I would say. But I think what truly touched me was how the, the Baha'is that I knew initially were translating their beliefs into action. And that's what led me to investigate the beliefs and the teachings themselves. And so you became a Baha'i while you were in Florida? Yes. And you said you went to Washington, D.C. to work for... It was an organization that was working on conflict resolution and character and values-based education. And environmental stewardship was one part of the work that this organization did. It was a startup nonprofit organization, and it was a very exciting time. Initially, my role was doing everything, <laughs> helping write business plans and fundraising and you know, helping um, establish the organization, going to the uh, city office and filing 501c3 uh, nonprofit status documents. And I think in that was a great learning experience for me, which has come of use much later in a lot of the other work. Now I work with hundreds of organizations around the world. Having been part of a startup organization has really, has really given me an appreciation for what organizations around the world go through to first to formulate themselves, to exist, to fundraise, and to survive all the odds that are stacked against them. So it was a great experience. But I did when I when I started. I wasn't preparing for a career working with organizations globally. It was just a wonderful opportunity at that time. And it was a good transition from my education to, as opposed to real life. And then where did you move on to after your time with that organization? I pretty much started working with my current organization. And we do democracy, governance, and human rights work especially in the context of elections and political processes. So I work in the Asia region and I worked for the same organization in Washington and I lived in, in Pakistan and in India and Afghanistan and I'm back in Washington now. Vasu, did you continue your dance and theater work after you graduated from high school? When I was in college during my master's program at the University of Florida, I was fortunate enough to be among a group of very engaged and enthusiastic and talented artists, musicians and dancers and theater people. When I came into contact with the Baha'i community, there was also a Baha'i Youth Workshop, which of course I um, joined with great interest and was part of. But also there were a lot of people in the Youth Workshop who had wonderful writing, theater, poetry, skills that were very, very useful and complementary to the sort of skills that I brought, especially in trying to understand and study and apply the teachings of the Baha'i faith to my life and to my work. Definitely my art was very much 
impacted by that. So when I was in college, I was performing and choreographing both Indian classical dance and some modern dance and theater work. It was on a variety of subjects. And when I moved to the U.S. and I started working with traditional Indian dance, but to an audience that was not familiar with it, it actually it gave me the opportunity to look at this art from a very different perspective. Here was a community of, on the one hand, immigrants to the United States who were from South Asia, from India and Sri Lanka and other countries who were familiar with Indian classical music and dance. And for them, this is a connection with their culture and their tradition and their homes. On the other hand, there were also people who had welcomed this immigrant community, and this was a window into a different life for people who are not from South Asia. And I think this was, in a sense, a very good opportunity to look at what we as communities have learned over thousands of years. And then we are at a point now where the world is changing and changing rapidly, and all of our values are being questioned and all of our traditions, our stories, everything has been looked at through new eyes. And the Baha'i faith and the teachings of the Baha'i faith, especially the oneness of mankind, provided the opportunity to explore through Indian classical dance and theater some of these concepts. My co-artists and I would often put together performances mostly at the university initially and then at other locations as well, that would have the traditional Indian classical dance structure, which began with an invocation and gradually evolved in complexity, both rhythmic and musical and thematic complexity, and culminated in a beautiful crescendo. After doing this, we would introduce either a piece or a, a part of the program that addressed issues of social concern, of human concern, using dance as a medium. The particular style of dance I perform is called Bharatanatyam, and it's a dance style that traces its origins back to um, millennia, performed in Indian temples as part of ritual worship, usually. It's widely performed in stages today across India and around the world. And this dance form is a, a beautiful window into the values and traditions and philosophy that underpin Indian culture. It's an, also a media of expression of new ideas. And part of how I worked with my co-performers and artists was to take this medium and apply it to modern issues. And one of the issues that we used, we addressed quite extensively through this was the equality of women and men. Now, as a Baha'i, this was part of my core belief that the equality of women and men was a spiritual truth, a spiritual principle, and that the more our society understood, internalized, you know, and actually started practicing this principle, the greater advancement these societies would see. I think this was definitely a spiritual teaching. It was definitely a human rights-based principle. It was also an extremely smart principle 
in that if you have a society that does not support and encourage and develop and nurture half of its population, then obviously that society is not going to progress. So utilizing dance to address some of these issues was really a, um, a wonderful experience because it provided us a very safe way to um, open people's minds to addressing equality and to bring some really difficult issues as discrimination and domestic violence. You know, these are endemic to South Asian societies and societies around the world, but to be able to address that through the arts. So I did quite a bit of that. Part of an innovation that we began at that time was Indian classical dance utilizes very complex hand gestures and movements. And it's really like mime, a very stylized version of it. Before the actual pieces, we would explain using these hand gestures what was going to be communicated in those pieces. Today, a lot of the artists do this. But 15 years ago when we were performing, this is not as common. And we really enjoyed curating or almost translating what we were doing to an audience that was not familiar with it. I think it really brought the art form closer to the people who were watching it, but it also made it a very powerful tool to bring the content of the performance to the audience. The principle of the equality of men and women is pretty much an accepted principle here in the culture of the United States. There's been recent issues in the news about the oppression of women in southeastern countries. I'm wondering if you've been able to take this dance form to other countries where the principle is not so necessarily universally recognized as it may be in the United States. So this is what was most interesting. When I began working on this, on some of some, some pieces, some theater pieces and dance pieces relating to the equality of women and men, I came to this coming from you know, a South Asian background. I lived in India and Sri Lanka, and we were working with you know, predominantly Indian classical dancers. The most interesting interaction was that the Baha Youth Workshop in Gainesville, Florida, and my set of choreographers and friends from the Indian dance community worked together on a piece called Asmita. And Asmita means one who does not have a name, nameless. And we picked this name because there was an organization in southern India that was working on women's empowerment. And the founder of this organization had come to the University of Florida, and she gave a talk about domestic violence. Several of my friends and I, we went to this and we thought this is a very important subject for us to try to address. And then we did this through the arts. Now, what was absolutely fascinating was the young men and women who were part of the Baha'i Youth Workshop, the majority of whom were born and raised here in the United States, in addressing and putting this together, had so much of personal experience of inequality that they had noticed and felt that they shared and brought those experiences to the choreography and to the development of this piece that it was quite interesting. I had always assumed that Western societies are far more advanced in the way they understand equality and express equality. And in many ways, that is true. 
no question about that at all. Uh, great strides have been made in this principle of equality of women and men in Western societies. But there's a deep down sense of inequality that still exists. You know, the fact that this exists in Asia was not a surprise to me. I knew this and I wanted to address this. And both through my work and through my art, this is something that I try very hard to address and work with like-minded people and champions. But what was interesting was that even here in some of the more developed countries, some of the more vibrant democracies, this is still an issue. And that was important learning. Now, going back to your question about whether I have taken some of this work and used this in countries, most of my performance, my work as an artist and a performer has been here in the U.S., but my work takes me to South Asia, and I've had the privilege to work with a lot of organizations that do street theater and traditional art for social change. And I have collaborated with them and watched them utilize art to talk about the oppression of women. And it is very powerful. It is very, very powerful. Subjects that are taboo are able to be addressed at the level of the community directly you know, under the tree or in the courtyards of a temple, a wedding hall, people are talking about these issues of oppression and these issues of inequality and how a lot of people have triumphed, uh, struggled and overcome this, but then a lot of people are victims also. And the role that religious leaders or government officials or the media ordinary citizens, young people, enthusiastic, energetic young people, how can these different groups of people come together and stand for this principle? I've almost seen over and over again where art has been involved and where spirituality has been used to inspire and motivate. Those efforts are almost always more successful than efforts that are simply legalistic or structural in nature. Yeah, I think because the arts reach the human heart, and it's the human heart that needs to change more than any kind of political structure. Absolutely. In the Baha'i writings, the son of Baha'u'llah, Abdul Baha, talks about the effect that the environment has on the human heart and the effect that individuals and our heart has on the environment. And this is a mutually reinforcing process. The environment affects us and we affect the environment and both have to be transformed simultaneously. So the structures and the legal infrastructure, these are really very important. Also, equally important, if not more important, is the personal transformation. And I think this is where religion and spirituality play a very strong role in transforming you know, knowledge and attitudes and perceptions of people. And especially in an issue where it has taken millennia for us to come to this point of inequality in societies and to transcend those inequalities and transform people, a very strong and powerful motivational force and transformational force is needed. And the Baha'i faith teaches that this is tr truly the role of religion. Uh, this is not a, you know, a, a byproduct or a side effect of religion, but this is the whole purpose of religion. It's this transformation of individuals and transformation of societies.
And it reminds me of the tremendous transformational process that occurred from 1960 to 1970 in our own country with the civil rights movement, how how this country was able to progress not only politically, but I think more and more people just are starting to accept the oneness of humanity, no matter what their what color their skin is. Once in New York, I saw in a subway, there was this statement, nothing is more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And I truly think that the oneness of humanity is one of those ideas. It has always been a spiritual principle. It has always been a spiritual truth. But it's also a truth that has really come of age now. And in every field of human endeavor, we see this oneness of humanity being reflected. I think the Baha'i teachings provide a wonderful way to understand and look at the world and that there are two different processes that are simultaneously occurring. One is all of these philosophies and and relationships and very oppressive relationships that people had with each other, you know, on the one hand are slowly breaking down and with great, you know, noise and tumult in a very spectacular manner, breaking down all around us. But at the same time, there is also a new world, a world that's characterized by justice, a world that's characterized by this oneness that's also being simultaneously built up. Um, one of my favorite places in the world is the Baha'i House of Worship in New Delhi, which I had the opportunity to visit many times over the last 10 years, because my work often takes me to Delhi, and I also live there. What's extremely beautiful about the symbolism of this structure is that it, it's a pure white lotus. The lotus flower, in as pristine as it is, rises out from the muck and dirt that surrounds it. And I think in the same way from out of this chaos and this world that's just characterized as injustice and oppression and every possible form of dysfunctionality, simultaneously there is emerging a beautiful, pristine new world order. And I think if one truly begins, if the open mind to look, the signs of this everywhere. But if you're not tuned to these beautiful occurrences around the world, we then buy into a narrative that things are all falling apart and there's very little hope for humanity. Yeah, if there's anything, the message of the Baha'i Faith is hope and the belief that humanity as a species is evolving spiritually and that we are maybe going through a turbulent age, an adolescence, so to speak. But the Baha'i viewpoint is, is that things aren't going to get worse. Yes, things are going to be turbulent, but things are going to get better. I, I completely, completely agree. I think the vision that the teachings of Baha'u'llah gives us is a vision, it, it literally talks about the golden age or the age of maturity of 
humankind and the possibilities for reorganizing our life on the planet as we know is just endless. And there are two ways to get to this, I suppose. One is we do this as a process of collective choice. Right? I mean, there are many ways to end the conflict. We can fight till we are tired and we no longer have the energy to fight anymore. Or we stop, halt, and then look at solutions that work for both sides and move forward in a very constructive and positive way, which then you know, saves millions of lives and resources from destruction. So I think as humanity, we really are at a point of choice where we can make this transition in a thoughtful way that does not harm the planet, that actually puts an end to a lot of the exploitation and oppression around the world. Or we would still make that transition, but it would be after untold loss and sorrow and loss of potential. So, but this transition we will definitely make. I think one of the more well-said sayings of the Baha'i faith is, let your vision be world-embracing. And I think that really is the vision that humanity needs to have at this time if it wants to move forward in a not-so-turbulent manner to reach the real true capacity of humankind. And as long as we stay behind with our anachronistic viewpoint that we are just a collection of nations working in a self-interest point of view, that we are continue to have trials and tribulations for us to reach that ultimate goal of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Absolutely. I think the Baha'i community and working with like-minded individuals and organizations around the world has embarked on you know, what is nothing short of a true spiritual revolution. Right? And I think the key components of this transformative process right now, which is being replicated in and implemented in hundreds of thousands of localities where Baha'is reside now, there are sort of these building blocks of bringing people of different faith traditions together to be able to praise and glorify God in a very safe and non-ritualistic environment, right? these devotional gatherings that are occurring. And another building block of this process is the study of spiritual texts, the Baha'i teachings, in the context of their application in service to humanity. And a third building block of this process is working with children, spiritual and moral education of children. And the fourth building block is empowering young people, especially from the age of 10 to 14. You put these four pieces together and what you really see is a grassroots level change process that is slowly permeating all over the world that Baha'is and their friends and their co-workers are all involved in. And it gives you a sense of hope and a sense of something concrete because I think it's important to believe that another world is possible 
we also need to have the building blocks to try to make that happen. And I think what the Baha'i faith offers to the world, as you said, sort of in a very world-embracing and open way, is inviting people to come and join the Baha'is in this process where we are making concrete neighborhood community level efforts to change what we see around us and to better reflect these qualities that we spoke about earlier that are actually common to all religious traditions and traditions that do not really believe in a religion or a god but believe in universal values. These human values are really what make us human beings and I think to be able to reflect those in our academic, scientific, commercial, artistic, in every field of endeavor to reflect those human values, that's what will transform the world. I think the belief is really important. The concrete work to get there is equally important. To get back to your dance, back in November, you came to Mount Holyoke College and presented a dance. And if you could please describe for folks, what was the theme of that dance that you performed? This dance is really fascinating. I'm glad you asked about it. So the performance at Mount Holyoke was to celebrate the birth of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, who Baha'is believe is the manifestation of God for this day and age. And it's an interesting terminology, this manifestation of God. Every religion has a great prophet founder, and Baha'u'llah is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. What is most interesting about this word manifestation and this understanding of what a manifestation of God is, it's more than a prophet, it's more than a human being who's founded a religion. It's truly a very special being who has brought a revelation from God to humanity. And in Indian tradition and belief, there's a word which is now very popular, and that is the avatar. And avatar means an incarnation or a manifestation. People who come to understand Baha'u'llah's station from different religious perspectives all have one idea in common, in that he is the return of a promised one. So every religious tradition promises a golden age and the return of its founder or prophet founder or its manifestation. For example, the Buddha says that there will be a fifth Buddha who would come after him and establish, he would be the Buddha of universal brotherhood and he would establish a golden age. Christianity talks about the return of Christ. Islam talks about the return of prophet Muhammad and the return of Christ and Zoroastrian tradition, the Hindu tradition, every tradition talks about the coming of a promised one. And Baha'is believe that Baha'u'llah is this promised one. To celebrate the birth of Baha'u'llah, every Baha'i community holds a devotional program. There's usually a talk, there's usually presentations, or, you know, there's no rituals or clergy in the Baha'i faith. So every community takes ownership of the celebration and crafts something that's unique. No two celebrations are usually alike, and no two years are alike either. So this year, the Mount Holyoke College Baha'i community invited me to come and present the perspective of Baha'u'llah being the promised one from the Hindu tradition. 
and that was the dance that you saw. This was a Indian classical dance, Bharatanatyam performance, and I took Hindu mythology and a belief in the ten incarnations or ten avatars, the Dasha avatars, as it is called. The tenth of those incarnations, a lot of Hindus believe, has still not happened, and it's the incarnation that they are waiting for, the avatar they are waiting for, Kalki avatar. And Baha'is believe that that Kalki avatar is Baha'u'llah. And that world-transforming process, this Kalki avatar is supposed to inaugurate in this world, has already begun, and it has already happened. So these signs that I talked about earlier, these glimmers of hope that are in every community, in every country around the world where things are transforming and changing, both at a community level, but also through a lot of collective global efforts, we believe is part of this new epoch or era that the Kalki Avatar has inaugurated. So this is a story that I was telling through dance, and I was using hand gestures, Indian classical music, so I stopped after every two, actually maybe I stopped after the first five and then narrated the story again just so people understand. This is, the story is, it begins with creation mythology and then moves into epics and then there's some actual history and then it moves into the future. So the first story is that of a God coming to earth or manifesting himself as a fish in the beginning of this transition between very much like a Noah's Ark story where there was a huge deluge, a human being and many, many different animals and plants, a pair, a man and a woman, and then many, many different pairs of animals are actually saved in this big boat that's steered to safety by God appearing as a fish. And then the second story is that of a turtle, God appearing in the form of a turtle or a tortoise. And then the third story is relating to God appearing as a wild boar, an animal. And then the fifth, the fourth story relates to God manifesting himself on earth as a half man, half lion to kill a demon. Each of those stories typically have the good versus evil type of background to it, that there is human suffering, a plea to help, and God manifesting himself on earth to end this human suffering and establish righteousness. There's a beautiful verse in the Bhagavad Gita, a Hindu scripture, where Lord Krishna, who in this scheme of ten incarnations is usually the eighth incarnation, Lord Krishna says that to protect the pious and the good and the noble, to destroy the evil and the wicked, he would appear in every epoch to establish righteousness. This belief is very much part of Hindu scriptures and traditions that God would appear or manifest himself on earth to establish righteousness. And in fact, when we earlier talked about commonalities, this is one of the commonalities between you know, Hindu philosophy and the Baha'i teachings. And I, I think this commonality is not, you know, accidental. It's common because it's a spiritual truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at it from an external perspective, it is a beautiful commonality between these two 
religions and in the Baha'i faith also that the purpose of a manifestation of God appearing on earth is to uplift society, uplift human civilization to another level, a whole other level, and to transform societies that were dark into glorious light. So this is exactly why manifestations of God appear, and this is the same in the Hindu tradition as well. So the story that I performed there had these ten incarnations, and um, it ended in the story of the Kalki Avatar, or the tenth incarnation, whom Hindu tradition, most contemporary Hindu traditions still believe is yet to happen, and Baha'is believe that it actually has happened. So this was the dance performance. And of course, Baha'is believe that this was Baha'u'llah, and the birth of Baha'u'llah seemed like a very apt occasion mm -hmm. to perform this piece. What I would like to do more with both my life in terms of work and my art and my personal life is really to accompany people in a process of empowering ourselves to truly understand, search within us what are these unique talents and faculties that God has given each one of us. Right? There's a belief, it's a beautiful statement in the Baha'i teachings that man is a mind rich in gems of inestimable value. And just like a mind, there's a lot of effort that's taken, um, that's needed to bring out these gems. And what I've always wondered and valued is that each individual has a different set of gems and a different set of talents and faculties that God has blessed them with. So the purpose of this life is to externalize that in the service of humanity and in bettering ourselves and our societies. So what I want to utilize my art and work to do is to support and accompany people in this in this process. And I think, you know, I always feel that art definitely provides this opportunity in a very safe and non-judgmental and beautiful and uplifting fashion. Well, thank you so much, Vasu, for, your, for sharing your story and your art. Look forward to another long conversation sometime. <laughs> that would be great. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Vasu Mohan, a Baha'i and traditional Bharata Natyam Indian dancer. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
when righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride, then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world. From age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. To order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion. A descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom in conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Glory, the glory of God, 
and in the Holy Qur'an, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp, the lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing. O children of men, know ye not why we created you all from the same dust, that no one should exalt himself over the other? Ponder at all times in your hearts how ye were created. Since we have created you all from one same substance, it is incumbent on you to be even as one soul, to walk with the same feet, eat with the same mouth, and dwell in the same land, that from your inmost being, by your deeds and actions, the signs of oneness and the essence of detachment may be made manifest. Such is my counsel to you, O concourse of light. Heed ye this counsel, that ye may obtain the fruit of holiness from the tree of wondrous glory. Take my life away But this love will never change They can take my rights away But I'll grow stronger every day They can take my life away But this love will never change They can take my rights away But I'll grow stronger every day It's my right to live a life that's free be a citizen who believes in world equality We shouldn't have to hide or feel the need to cower Our beliefs shape who we are, they give us inner power With our heads held high we shall walk on With utmost love in our hearts we remain strong They ask the question we refuse Because it is our right to choose They can take my life away Take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger every day. They can take my life away, but this love will never change. They can take my rights away, but I'll grow stronger yeah. every day. In the silence of this courtroom, I closed my eyes and saw the future. Around the time that we heard from the prosecutors. 
and your honor, I think you've already made your choice. So to the jury, please excuse me if I rejoice. Cause it was years ago, back when I decided to save a place inside my heart. Where Baha'u'llah's resided, and my family all around the world will watch and pray. So I am not alone, will I surrender? Not today. They can take my life, my life away. WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.